Titus chapter 2. I'm going to speak for just a few minutes this morning on the glory of Christmas. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And this is what the Word of God says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It seems that Christmas time is the perfect time to look back and remember all of those special moments and memories of the past. And I'm sure over the last few days you have recalled many of those memories. But if you're like me, Christmas time is also a time to look forward and anticipate the look on your loved one's face when you surprise them with your gift. And as we celebrate Christmas, it's important for us to remember that Christmas is about both looking back and remembering the grace of God and looking forward and anticipating the glory of God. And here in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, Paul brings both the grace of God and the glory of God together in one long sentence in the Greek text. And in this passage, Paul says that the grace of God has appeared in the past tense and that we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, future tense. And it is clear in this text that when Paul talks about these two appearings, he is referring to the two comings of Jesus Christ and the importance of how you and I live between these two events. The language that Paul uses to describe these appearings is striking. He refers to them as the appearing of grace and as the appearing of glory. And so in the incarnation of Jesus, when God became human flesh, we have the appearing of grace. We have the appearing of grace in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And in the second appearing of Jesus, when he returns for his bride, the church, it is an appearing of the glory of God. And so Paul's message of grace and glory in this passage can be summed up in one word, Christ. In Christ, we see a picture of Christmas grace, and in Christ, we see a picture of Christmas glory. Now, the New Testament repeatedly emphasizes the glory of God in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
We read some of these verses earlier together. In Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Luke says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Luke chapter 2 and verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32, in, when Simeon saw Christ for himself, he said this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so from beginning to end, the incarnation of Christ was surrounded by the glory of God. And just as there was glory surrounding the birth of Christ, the New Testament repeatedly teaches that there will be glory surrounding the second appearing of Christ. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27, the Bible says this, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in His glory, the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. And in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30, Jesus said, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, Jesus says again, And when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Friends, in Jesus Christ, there has been an appearing of God's grace, past tense. And there is going to be an appearing of God's glory, future tense. And as a result of this, we need to both look back and remember the manifestation of God's grace through the incarnation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also need to look forward and anticipate the manifestation of His glory for all to see. And in this text, in verses 13 and 14, we see the glory of Christmas. So would you note with me two simple truths this morning. First, in verse 14, look back and remember the appearing of the grace of God. In verse 14, Paul reminds us of what Jesus did for us when he appeared the first time. He tells us, first of all, in verse 14, that he redeemed us who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. This verse reminds every single one of us this morning that none of us can save ourselves from our sin and none of us can save ourselves from God's judgment for our sin. It reminds us that God did for us through his son 
what you and I could never accomplish or do for ourselves. In an act of complete divine grace, Paul says that Christ gave himself for us. And the language that Paul uses in this verse literally means that the Lord Jesus Christ became our substitute. Jesus Christ was our substitute on the cross by taking the suffering and punishment and death that our sin deserved upon himself. And notice what the text says, that he became our substitute so that he could redeem us from all of our lawlessness. He substituted himself on the cross on behalf of us to redeem us. The word redeem means to purchase and set free by paying a price. And dear friends, this text makes it clear that the price that Christ paid to set us free from our enslavement to lawlessness and sin was the shedding of his own blood. Jesus Christ gave his full self on our behalf to set us free. That's why Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He paid the substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial price of his life and his blood to set you and I free. Jesus Christ in his work on the cross met the just demands of a holy God and of God's holy law. And he became the payment that set us free from our slavery to sin so we could experience his full forgiveness and grace. Oh, friends, look back and remember this morning. He's redeemed you. He's set you free. Your chains are gone. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But he didn't just redeem us. Verse 14 says that he also purified us. He gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And Paul reminds us that the grace that redeemed us is the same grace that purifies us. That Jesus Christ came and gave himself fully on our behalf, not only to set us free from our enslavement to sin, but also to purify us. For the reality of our sin is this, friends. It made us dirty. It made us guilty. And it made us ashamed. But God's grace... It makes us clean. It makes us innocent. And it makes us confident. In and through God's grace, you and I can actually blush again. We've been so purified from our sin. And there's no greater picture of this purification than to look at our cars this time of year. 
and watch from this time of year in this horrible weather until about the first of March when it finally starts to warm up again and you take that car through the car wash for the first time. And the picture is striking, isn't it? Months and months of buildup and salt and cinders and sludge all washed away in a moment and you actually see that your car has a paint color again and that same stark contrast is what it is like to be purified by Christ from your sin the Bible says that if you commit one sin God sees you as if you're guilty of breaking every one of his commandments. And that's the pile of sin and the record of wrongs that are against you. And when Jesus Christ put himself in place of you on the cross as your substitute, he took every single one of those sins upon himself to redeem you and set you free. But he didn't just set you free. He also put in you purity. He didn't just wipe out the old and the bad and the ugly. He also put inside of you the good that can only come from him. And that's what it means for him to make you pure and innocent and clean and spotless. And who among us could do this for ourselves. None of us could. Only Jesus could do this. And notice what he says when he purified you. He purified you to make you his own possession. That when he redeemed you and set you free and put his goodness inside of you and made you pure and spotless and blameless, he made you his own. He marked you with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, as a guarantee that you belong to him until you see him face to face in all of his glory. You are his possession, his purified set free possession. Ezekiel described it this way in Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all of the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. That is exactly what Paul is describing in this text. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received the mercy of God. Oh, friends, if you are in Christ today, this is who you are. You are redeemed. You are purified. You are the possession of God himself. 
And there are immense security in these words. Because once you belong to God, nothing and no one can ever take you away from him. You are his. And so we remember that he redeemed us. We remember that he purified us. And in verse 14, we remember that he gives us passion. Do you see what he says? He purifies you for his own possession and makes you zealous for good works. Do you know how the Puritans described this reality? They said that this dramatic internal change of motivation in our lives is the power of a new and compelling affection. That when Christ redeems you, and when Christ purifies you, and he makes you his own, he gives you the power of a new affection. That no longer are you zealous to run after sin and the things of the world, but now God has given you a new passion. God has given you a new purpose. And this new passion and this new purpose is for him and for working for Him, that in Christ you have a desire to worship Him. In Christ you have a desire to obey Him. And in Christ you have a desire to serve Him. It is the very opposite of the passion that you used to have for sin and lawlessness. God has changed that passion and taken it away. And in Christ, He gives you a passion for a new affection. An affection for him. And by the way, dear friends, that's how you know you're a Christian. Your passions have changed. Your affections have changed. You don't love the things that you used to love anymore. You don't love the things that you used to hide from everyone else. Now you love Christ. Now you love his word. Now you long for his glory. Now you want to worship him and sing to him and serve him and obey him. It is the new affection that Christ brings in your life. And that's why it's important to look back at Christmas and remember. Remember his grace. In Christ, he's redeemed you. In Christ, he's purified you. And in Christ, he's given you a new passion and purpose. Well, we not only look back and remember the appearing of the grace of God. Secondly, in verse 13, we look forward and wait for the appearing of the glory of God. Notice what he says in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now you'll notice in verse 13 that Paul begins this verse in the present tense. That right now, this very moment, if you are a Christian, you are in a period of waiting, waiting for the blessed hope. And he is describing the position of every single one of us who have ever experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But notice in the text in verse 13, he transitions quickly from the present tense 
to the future tense as he describes the second appearing of Jesus Christ. And he uses this word appearing that he used back in verse number 11. It has the root ideas of uncovering and unveiling and disclosing. It describes the visible appearance of something or someone that has been concealed and made invisible. It was used in the classic Greek language of describing daybreak when the sun would leap up over the horizon into view or of an enemy emerging out of an ambush or of the supposed saving intervention of a god or gods in human affairs. Something that was invisible being made visible. Something that was in the shadows that has now been brought into the light. And the idea behind this word appearing is that Christ is now this very moment glorified and reigning in heaven. And yet his reign and his glory are in a sense hidden from our view. But Paul reminds us with this word appearing that one day the full weight of Christ's glory will be revealed. And as the Bible says, every single knee will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. And what seems to be hidden now will be revealed for all of the world to see. And no one will be hidden from the gaze of the glory of Christ on that day. And so Paul reminds us that we are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice what the text says. Paul says that this appearing is our blessed hope. Now that's interesting, isn't it? We normally use the word hope to describe something that is uncertain. Boy, I hope I get that new job I applied for. Boy, I hope the store will have that item I need to purchase because I waited till the day before Christmas. Boy, I sure hope all the kids and the baby will sleep tonight. And every time we use the word hope in that context, we are not speaking with certainty. We are, in fact, hoping that the baby will sleep through the night with no guarantee that that will happen. That is how we use the word hope. Now, would you take that definition of hope and read it back in the text as we are waiting for our blessed hope with no guarantee, no certainty that Jesus Christ will appear in all of his glory. Does that make sense to you? Do you think that's what Paul is talking about when he uses the word hope? No, friends. Hope in the Bible is different. Here's how hope in the Bible is defined. It is an assured expectation. It is a confident certainty. It is a divinely promised certainty. It is like when you purchase a ticket to get on an airplane and you are assigned a seat number it is your guarantee that you've got a seat on that flight 
You don't have to hope that you've got a seat. You're guaranteed that you got a seat. It is an assured expectation that when you go through TSA and you get to the gate, they're going to let you board the plane and sit in that seat. And this is the language that Paul is using with the word hope here. He is completely confident. He is completely certain that the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will appear. And so he says, it is a blessed hope. Let me try to illustrate it another way. Have you ever had to say to your children or your grandchildren, you're going to need to lower your expectations. Like what you've got built up that you think is going to happen or that you're going to get or that's under the tree you should lower those things right now or you're going to be greatly disappointed. Anybody ever had to say anything like that? Oh, come on. I'm the only one? Seriously? I don't believe that. Well, here's the beauty of this text of Scripture and the language that Paul uses. When he says that the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is our blessed hope. He is reminding us that God will never, ever, ever, ever tell us to lower our expectations for that day for which we wait. That when the glory of God appears in the face of Jesus Christ, it'll be greater than anything we could have ever imagined or expected. It is our blessed hope. And because Jesus appeared the first time in his incarnation, we can be confident and certain that he will appear the second time in his glory. Jesus is coming back, and Paul says, this is our blessed hope. And listen to the text, friends. It's our blessed hope. The word our speaks of community. It speaks of the family of God. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've never recognized your sin and how it separated you from God and how you deserve to die for your sin and how God in Christ has made it possible for you to be forgiven and reconciled to Him through His Son's work on the cross, and if you've never confessed your sin and turned away from it and believed on Christ to save you, then you're not a part of the family and this blessed hope is not yours. The hope of the second appearing of Jesus Christ in all of his glory is only for those who know Christ as their Savior. And this hope of the second appearing of Jesus Christ is a hope that will bring wonderful blessings to our lives. That's why it's called a blessed hope. This hope brings the blessing of resurrection. When you and I will receive a resurrection body like the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 to 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
We are going to see Jesus face to face because we are going to be like him in resurrection life. But it's not just the blessing of resurrection. This second appearing of Christ brings the blessing of comfort. When all of the struggles, disappointments, failures, wrongs, heartaches, and griefs of this present age will be forever replaced. John saw a glimpse of it. He described it this way. And I heard a loud voice from the, saying, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. and He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen, friends. Listen to it as if you've never heard it before. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine the glory of that day? It is a blessed hope. It is a certainty. And it will be beyond anything I could describe to you this morning or anything that you could dream of or comprehend. But I need to remind you this morning that on the same day that this glory of Christ will be revealed in all of its magnificence for those who know him, it will also be a day of fear and trembling for those who don't know Christ. I will remind you this morning that in the Old Testament, there were accounts where the glory of God was a threat to people. Do you remember? Do you remember when Moses asked God to show him his glory? And God had to hide him in the cleft of the rock. And Moses could only see the afterglow of the backside of the glory of God. Otherwise, God said he'd be destroyed if he saw it all. And the appearing of God's glory in Jesus Christ will be a dangerous day for those who don't know Christ. That's why I'll remind all of us this morning that Jesus appeared first in grace so that at his second appearing in glory, it would not be a threat to us. And what we have here in this passage of Scripture, friends, is a clear declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, as Paul says, our great God. He is the object of our worship. He is the creator. He is the savior. He is the forgiver of sins. And he is the final judge. And he is also our savior, our deliverer, our redeemer, and our rescuer. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is the one he is the only one who came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament prophecies, and he is the only one who is coming again. 
And as a result, on this Christmas morning, our hearts should swell up with praise in response to the appearing of the grace of God and in an eager anticipation of the appearing of the glory of God. And Spurgeon said it this way, See then where we are. We are surrounded behind and before with the appearings of our Lord. Behind us is our trust, and before us is our hope. Behind us is the Son of God in humiliation. Before us is the great God our Savior in His glory. To use an ecclesiastical term, we stand between two epiphanies. The first is the manifestation of the Son of God in human flesh in dishonor and weakness. And the second is the manifestation of the same Son of God in all of His power and all of His glory. End quote. Grace has appeared. And one day, glory will appear. This is the grace and the glory of Christmas. And so friends, on this Christmas day, take a moment to look back and remember grace. Remember where it found you. And take a moment to look forward and anticipate glory where we'll be together forever. Let's pray.